It's February 7th. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined, as always, by Dan Nathan. You're watching Market Call. We're going to throw 30 minutes up because we're going to be out. We're going to be Audi 5000, Dan, in 30. But today we're going to be joined by the great Carter Braxtonworth of Worth Charting. He's going to hit the most interesting technical setups in the market right now. Today's episode of Market Call is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by Tomorrow. And of course, Open Exchange, Dan, because they manage the virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. It's a Monday. It's February. It's Super Bowl week. How are you? I'm doing well, guy. You're all fired up. Maybe it's for that Super Bowl. But listen, last week felt like the Super Bowl in the markets. We had a bunch of earnings and stocks were moving around like crazy after those earnings. And we also had that jobs report. I mean, that jobs report was like kind of just the punctuation on a very volatile week. And, you know, this is probably one where if you had said it was going to be a miss by a few hundred thousand jobs or a beat by a few hundred thousand jobs, which is what happened I wouldn't have been able to tell you what rates we're going to do and what markets we're going to do. What was your take on Friday's market action in response to that huge beat in the job? Well, it's the it's the moving. I mean, it's again. It's and we're going to talk about this with Carter, but it's moving interest rates. And you're right. I mean, a lot of times I say, if you had told me what's going to happen, then asked me to sort of gauge the market, I'd be wrong probably more than half the time. The market is extraordinarily humbling, but it just goes to show you that once again. You can't have a much better job market. As a matter of fact, there are more job openings historical than there are people looking for jobs. So the Fed, once again, proving that they don't know what they're doing, which is why 10-year yields are now north of 1.9%, going higher, by the way. But we'll talk about what that means to the market later. But again, extraordinary job numbers, heavy inflation. That's not going to bait anytime soon. And that's manifesting itself into different areas of the market. But the broader market, once again, which we will look at, does not seem to care all that much. Well, you talk about runaway inflation, Guy, and we're expecting a CPI report for January, Thursday morning. That's really the main event when you think about what we've got in store for us this week. And I think every trader is going to be kind of looking at that one. And again, if you tell me if that was a number that has a six handle on it, okay, so last month, 7% CPI was reported for December, 40-year highs or so. I think the expectation is a little higher than that right now. But if it comes in soft, does it mean that the Fed, okay, maybe they got themselves turned around and they're fighting inflation. Rates are ripping at a time where inflation had just peaked. That being said, if it comes in hotter than expected, well, that means that the Fed is on the right track here. And then we're likely to see rates go higher. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I would. I don't necessarily, I don't think you're suggesting this. I think if it's a six handle, I don't think that's going to change the course that this Federal Reserve is on, but it's going to create conversation. We'll see what happens again to both interest rates in the market. You know, I'm hearing the whisper numbers out there, 7.3%. doesn't really matter. I mean, a lot of this, as you said, is baked in. I think the surprise would be a number with a six handle on it, but we'll see. But that is obviously, I think, one of the main things people are watching this week. You know, what's another surprise and something that a lot of people are going to be watching this week? Guy, we're going to be at five o'clock today, the market call. You know why? You know why? Because Fast Money's dark for two weeks there. They're going to cover the Olympics, and that's great, okay? But you and I, who do Fast Money, you do it almost every night. I do it a few nights a week here. We're going to do this market call at 5 o'clock. We're going to have more on that later. You can get it at this link. But one of the things that we spent a lot of time last week on Fast Money and on Market Call talking about were earnings. And they're not done yet. And one of the things I think is really interesting, tomorrow we're going to get Pfizer's results. And, you know, if you look at the way that Moderna, okay, one of the other big COVID vaccine makers has gone, right? 
It's down more than 50% from its highs. Pfizer's really held in there a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see how investors react to whatever they have to say. They're obviously getting the benefit of the boosters. Disney's the one that I think on Wednesday is going to be really interesting, especially when you consider that massive gap lower we saw nearly two weeks ago after Netflix's disappointing slubs. Disney disappointed on subs um, last quarter, and the stock got creamed. And then the other one I think is really interesting is Thursday morning, Twitter, especially when you consider that Facebook move last week. Any of these names stick out to you that you're really watching closely this week, Guy? It's Disney on Wednesday. Disney was the D in my dawn trade for this year. And I think, look, I, I think I talked about it when Disney was 151. I think it briefly traded higher. Now it's got a 140-something handle on it. But I think Disney's going to be a 2022 story once again. I think the stock, if you look at it, it's got whacked from that all-time high with a 200 handle down to these 140 levels. I think Disney is going to be a reopened trade for the back half of this year. I'll stand by it. I don't necessarily think it's an earnings story this quarter, but I think it will be. But we got to really look at, Dan, as the broader market because, again, you have that breach of that trend line. That's a great trend line, by the way. Breach of the 150-day move, or in this case, the 200-day moving average. A retest of the trend line. Now we're in sort of no man's land. But if you look at this, all the levels make a lot of sense, including where we stopped on the downside. Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, Carter would tell you, you know, the lines draw themselves. And in this instant, there are plenty of lines. You know, on Friday, the market, the S&P in particular right here, held that 200-day, found a little resistance at that breakdown level from 45.50, right below that uptrend that was support is now resistance. So I think the S&P is at a pretty critical spot. And I think, again, the, the kind of catalyst that we just highlighted this week could be one of the drivers to kind of see if we break out above that resistance or lower And, you know, you got to look at the NASDAQ, though, here, Guy, because this is one of the ones where when we think about all that volatility in the single names post results, there were some of the biggest names in the NASDAQ in particular. And you look at this thing, it is still below its 200-day. So the S&P is above its 200-day. It's below that breakdown level. It's down about 9.5% on the year and down more than that from its highs in November. And those highs, which were never confirmed a new high when the S&P was making highs in the very first week of January. What's your take on the S&P versus NASDAQ right here? The NDX is what scares me here. I mean, this is the one you have to look at because to your point, it never really validated that prior all-time high. We stopped. This one looks sort of like it could turn over. And that 200-day moving average, which now seems to be trending lower, I think is all you need to sort of see in this. And that line of support and subsequent resistance is clearly in play. I think this is the one that breaks down, if you're asking my opinion, and I think it's going to drag the broader market with it. So although obviously the SPX is a larger of the two, I think this is the more important of the two right now. All right. Well, here's one near and dear to your heart. And you were calling this. We had that false breakout in the Russell 2000 small cap stocks in November. You thought the broad market would go the way of the small caps. You had that false breakout. Then you had the index fall back within that really that 10-month range or so. And then it was the first one to really break down here. And it did drag the broad market lower. Goldman Sachs saying small caps are set to lag larger peers. Well, you know, headline here is like Titanic hits the iceberg. We got mm-hmm. it. We went all over that in the market call. What's your take on small caps here? Because now they are below that one-year support line, which is pretty clear technical resistance at the moment. If you read between the lines here, and I'm not saying you have to, but what Goldman Sachs is basically saying is, look, the economy is probably not as strong as people think, and all interest rates are going higher. Rates are not going higher because this is underlying economic strength, because this are these are the most economically sensitive names. And I happen to agree with them. I think they will lag. In terms of 
how you trade it. Well, you have this very defined sideways action. You mentioned the false breakout, but now we have broken through that support. And that 200-day moving average is now sloping lower, which does not, to me, bode particularly well for the small caps. So if the small caps were to break down, and by the way, the obviously level support here is 1750, I think it's going to drag the broader market with it. I've said that for a while, and I'm going to stand by it, Dan. Nathan. Yeah, well, you also said this, that interest rates, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was going to get to 2%, and it really is not far away from there. And one of the things I just mentioned, Guy, you know, back in Q1 of 2021, okay, so about a year ago or so, when the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was marching higher, right, it had started the year, I think, at about 1%, got to about 1.77 in March. And you know what was doing really well back then? Small cap stocks were doing really well. And I think you make a really good point right there. At the time, the perception was that the vaccine rollout was going well, and we'd be on the other side of this pandemic in the not so distant future. And so the economically sensitive small caps should benefit from that. So rates were going higher, and so were small caps. Now we have a situation where look at this chart. If you took off 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, which may be a little wonky for a lot of investors, you know, but if you said that's some hot internet stock or some media stock or some energy stock, you'd be like, I want to buy that, right? It's a really constructive uptrend. It consolidated over the last six months and it just broke out after making a flag. So do we get to 2%? And then you got to look at that five-year chart and the 10-year, the five-year duration, because that one tells a very different story, Guy. No, and this is the one you've been pointing out for a while. You say, look, we can get to 2%, but with that said, you're still in a in a multi, multi-year downtrend and you're right. And I do think we're going to get to 2%. I think we're going to struggle if we get there. I mean, look, I think we're at 191 or 192 as we speak right now, so we're not that far away. Question is, what happens if and when we get there? I think we will stall, and I think you'll see sort of a back and fill, probably back down to 175 or so. The real story, in my opinion, is what's happened in the two-year along the way, and that's been an obvious story since September. Now, you're talking about two-year yields, which are 20 basis points. I mean, now we're pushing up towards 1.25, 1.3 which if you think about it, is a remarkable move in a short period of time. That's what you have to watch. That's what you've been saying. And that's what Danny Moses has been saying as well. Yeah. So the last time the Fed was tightening, though, Guy, when we started coming off ZERP and QE in 14 and 15, you know, we had that kind of, remember that little nickname? It was called the taper tantrum a little bit because the equities started to be a bit volatile here. I think there were a whole host of reasons why equities got volatile in this past, you know, month or so, five or six weeks. But, you know, rising interest rates, you know, if we get above 2%, might that be, you know, the kind of signal for the next leg lower? So the other one is rising commodities. I'm going to send that back to you, buddy. Now, let's bring in Carter Worth because he's listened to us opine now for the last 12 minutes. How, how are you, Carter? Sort of speak to what Dan and I have been just talking about. Yes, good opining. So you know, you've covered a lot of subjects. But I mean, obviously, perhaps the biggest single thing is the move in rates. And is it a breakout? It is. And you've shown that chart. Is it a breakout that has a lot of legs? You've also shown that chart, and the presumption is no, right? We're reaching a level where overhead supply, so to speak, comes into play, and there is no difference in 1.9 and 2.10. Here's the breakout. There's Well, look at those lines. They're beautiful. But the longer term, the five-year, shows that it's heavy lifting from here, not likely to progress in the same manner, if you will, that it has progressed so far. You know, Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs, has been there a long time. He's their commodities guy. They put out a piece that say, you know, I haven't seen something like this, Carter, in terms of commodities, basically in his career. And I happen to agree with that. I've been doing this a long time as well. 
Commodity spot prices record earlier this year. You look at it, Goldman Commodity Veteran, that's Jeff Curry. He's never seen a market like it. Speak to that. Right. So it's steep, uncorrected. In, nothing to do with that individual. I don't know him or he doesn't know me. But when anyone says in a written report that they haven't seen in their lifetime, who cares about their lifetime or my lifetime here? It's just about the history of the data. I mean, right? In 73, 74, oil spike. How old was he? I was born in 66, so I didn't really see it. But I remember the gas lines. If you've done your work and you studied your history, you haven't, right? It's, it's not relevant whether one remembers it in their life. That would apply every historian from the Civil War is... I don't remember the Civil War. I mean, anyway, talk like that is idiocy. <laughs> you know, you know way, who does remember the Civil War, Carter? There he is. Guy Adami remembers the Civil <laughs> okay. War. And you still do the reenactments, right, on the weekend. Right, folks. <laughs> get your cap. We <laughs> called the, call the muskets, but muskets. please continue. <laughs> anyway, I mean, the point is that it's steep and uncorrected, and it's things that are steep. Remember lumber? Nothing was as steep as lumber, and then lumber crashed. Now lumber's back on the move. So it's all about sequencing. And at some point, you're overdone to the downside. We know what that looks like. And you're overdone to the upside. And at this point, it's all a bit frothy to the upside. Well, sequencing is a good segue, Carter Braxton, because you have a chart on crude. I saw it last week, late last week on Friday on Worth Charting here, and I thought this was really interesting. Listen, I got to give Guy a lot of credit. He's been structurally bullish on the whole complex. We're going to hit the stocks in a couple minutes here, but you might change his mind when he sees your sequencing of this crude wave here, man. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in the crude market. Right. It is fascinating. And again, sometimes the lines draw themselves, meaning taking that trend line, that blue line and connecting those tops, they connect to the penny. And we know that at the lower bound, we've gone from basically 63 a barrel to 93. So a 50% move to a level where all of a sudden the story couldn't be more bullish. I mean, you know, I know that inventories are waning. I hear about it, that spare capacity is dwindling, that post-COVID demand is surging. There's supply outages in Libya and Ecuador and Nigeria. There's geopolitical risk in Ukraine. And, and that's why the market structure is bullish. People talk about backwardization. Hey, that's all great. But guess what? It's up against a line that has served us well. Not us, me, all of us, anyone who respects a chart. And when the story is really bullish, it's time to take some chips off the table. Yeah. I have, oh, sorry, Dan. Now, I was going to say quickly, I mean, this chart is says it all. I mean, you look at those red arrows down. I mean, Carter's nailed it. And you're probably going to see a back and fill. The question really is, where do we get to? Do we sort of do that 50% correction, which will probably get us to about 78 or so? We'll see. But I love this chart. Sorry, Dan, please continue. Yeah, no, I was just going to say two things. And one of the things that those peak to trough declines have been getting bigger since last year. And I think that's really important here. So if you think, oh, maybe it comes back to that prior high that we saw, you know, kind of at 86 or 87 or something. Well, if it's going down there, it might go a lot sharper, lower. Guy, you've also, the way you've been playing crude is through the equities. And, and the equities have been the top performing sector, I think, in the S&P 500. The XLE, the ETF that tracks the major integrated has been something listen that's parabolic walk us through that and the oil services the oih and also you started off this year i think with one of your top picks in the energy pack was halliburton and that's a great looking chart too so just give us a sense of what you're seeing as far as the demand for the equities right now look i think finally you know it's interesting i think the commodity has been way ahead of the equities and i think what that's been saying to me is the fact that equity investors do not believe the commodity move until they all believe it at once. And I think to your point about a parabolic move, I think that's what you're starting to see. 
in terms of some of these names. Yes, they have probably now caught up to the commodity and actually might be leading a bit, which leads you to this horizontal line that Carter drew. We're probably at huge resistance right here, and it would make sense to see it back and fill. I will say this, though, Dan, I just don't think the energy trade is over. I think it might pause here to those prior charts and this chart that we're looking at, but I don't think it's over by any stretch. So, I mean, look at those lines. I mean, in the sense that not the red line, which is the level where we are now, but that's a well-defined head and shoulders bottom. It's not a double bottom there, of course, but it's a stronger low than the COVID low. At the same time, think about, it's all about timeframes. Day-to-day, week over week, this is full. It's come a long way. Everyone's on it. And it's the time where you would sell calls against the long or trim because the narrative, I rattled through all the things that are so bullish, is in many ways in the market. Let's take a look at OIH because this is the all services one. Baker Hughes, Halliburton, Slumberjay comprise most of this. You see where we've been. Again, I've said it for a while. We're in this very defined sideways action effectively, and we're right in the middle of it now. I think you would suggest, given everything we just talked about, CBW, that this probably exhausts itself. Maybe we're not there yet, but we're getting damn close. Well, what's so shocking about it, of course, is two things, at least to my eye, that it's right now still below where it was in June with all of this good news. And so we know that these are very cyclical, more so than the big integrateds, and in many ways, capital intensive, if you will. It's a beta trade within energy. But the second thing that jumps out, not only are they below where they were in June, look at the longer term chart. I mean, just to climb back and recoup losses after, and that's only a two, three year chart. The real problem with energy, of course, is how damaged it is structurally from its peak back in 2008. Let's take a look at Halliburton real quick, because this is obviously one of the huge components. This is a pretty defined breakout, I would say. Its question here is, again, where does this exhaust itself? I mean, you can make an argument that it's north of 40 and fill that gap we saw in June of 2019. Other, or Actually, I think it's probably before that. Other people would say we're exhausting ourselves here, Carter. But importantly, it's acting better than the OIH. And that's, that's the tell, right? In terms of its sequencing, the group, as measured by the ETF, OIH, is nowhere near as strong as this. And this is where stock picking matters, right? The, there's a case made for Halliburton vis-a-vis the group. So, Carter, you just mentioned relative strength. Give us just some take about the equities here in general, if you want to take a broader look at them. Because, you know, to us, it's one thing to kind of look at some ETFs that track parts of the the energy complex or a single name. But I think you're taking a sort of broader look here. Right. And we might have some long-term charts. But what we know is that there are great phases in any part of an economy and great areas that then go away. Speaking of energy, think of coal. Big coal was one of the biggest industries in the United States. It's nothing now, literally nothing. But anyway, this is a very straightforward comparative chart. It's just one line versus another. It's all data going back to when Gix was formed in 1989. You're looking at the S&P 500 versus the energy sector. And of course, it's lagged. We see that. And the real lag was only over the last five, six years. But we've had this big ricochet. And you see the yellow line turning up. Now, if you were to look at this exact same chart, however, a different way, hold the S&P as a constant to expose the relative performance of energy. And we have that here. This really puts in context how darn bad things are. And so you'll see on this next chart what this is. And it's a little bit faint. Apologize for that. I didn't give it the right width. But take a look. That peak, that peak, this is a relative chart. You're not looking at energy, you're not looking at the S&P, you're looking at the ratio of the energy sector to S&P. That peak in 08, 147 a barrel. Now, 
That red line I've drawn is the low in 98. Can this minor head and shoulders bottom continue a little bit? Yes, is there a trade here or there? But what's really important about this is that energy is not and will never be the sector that it was. Yeah, well, listen, that chart on a relative basis over that time period is really interesting to me. And I remember in 2008 when crude was going on its way to 150, you know, that was an absolute parabolic move and it did nothing but correct over the next few years here. Carter, another one, a commodity that gets a lot of attention in, in periods like this where macro assets are in vogue when we see inflation fears and we see the dollar moving around and we see rates going higher. This is gold. And we've talked about it a little bit on Market Call. And Guy has had a really nice call over the last year and a half except for the fact that in the last few months, it really is just kind of meandering a little bit. I think you guys might call this sort of a pennant formation. What's your take on gold here? Because at a time where we're seeing, you know, again, inflation expectations at 40-year highs, what do we think this should be doing purely from a technical standpoint? And Guy, you know, I'd love to get your take after that on just the fundamentals here, because it looks like something's got to give in the not-so-distant future here. Well, that's right. You're kind of at a runway. I mean, you know, when you have converging lines, at some point, if you continue those lines will touch, form an apex, and they'll start to cross over one another, which is to say it's sort of breakout or breakdown time. And there is a large contingent in the investor community that considers this moment analogous to the 2011-2013 instance when in 2013, 10-year yields went from 1.6 to 3.231 and gold collapsed. And so is that happening? Is that about to happen? I would just make the point that on a week like last week, when real rates were really surging and all sorts of things that should be quite negative for gold, gold was unch, holding up like a rock. And ultimately, I think this gets resolved to the upside. I agree with you there. I mean, and again, you don't have to make that decision yet. I think both Carter and I would tell you that let the charts be your guide. I think it will break out quickly. What I'll tell you, though, you talk about inflation levels we haven't seen since the late 70s, early 80s. And then, by the way, more importantly, a Federal Reserve that's acknowledging that now, Bitcoin being more than cut in half over the last couple of months. And you say, where's gold? I would have been a couple hundred dollars higher, if not making new all-time highs. We're not there yet, Dan. But Bitcoin is your baby we got close to that 31,000 level that I thought we'd stop at. We didn't. We got to 33, but here we are, Dan Nathan. Pretty interesting. You know, I think it, like you just kind of laid it out. You know, the correlation to kind of risky assets got very, you know, high for Bitcoin. And that was not, I think, what a lot of people expected it to be in a way. And so um, it's really tracked, you know, some of these kind of high valuation, you know, like unprofitable tech stocks there. This breakout is pretty interesting here because if you look at, I'm just looking at my fact set screens and I'm seeing risk on sort of names in the stock market work. Well, this happened over the weekend and it might be kind of interesting to get a sense whether Bitcoin starts to lead a little bit, at least for those looking to kind of find their way into risky assets. And you talked about where the support was, Guy. Look at that 200-day moving average. It's just below kind of 50,000 there. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of rally this thing could stage here. I don't know, man. I'm kind of hard pressed to think that this move doesn't get faded and we see the thing pressing back towards those lows back in July. Carter, any quick thoughts before Guy has a viewer question for you? Any quick thoughts on the Bitcoin? Yeah, I mean, you've drawn the lines exactly right. This downtrend, this 50% sell-off is abating. You've moved above that line, but does it have legs? I suspect no. We do have a viewer question for you. I won't read the whole thing, but I will read what's underlined, Carter, for technical analysis 
When should one use logarithmic versus linear charts? That's from Dennis DeLugan six days ago. Hey, Dennis, the truth is all time frames are important. And I toggle back and forth. I look at the arithmetic. I look at the log. Now, a very long-term chart, right, that has great appreciation. If you're using arithmetic, you can't see the long-ago prices. They become like a flat line. So for a very long-term chart that has massive appreciation, logarithmic is the way to go. Carter, we love when you join us. Thanks for being with us. We're going to have you, I mean, as often as possible because we have a lot going on. Check out Carter Worth on Twitter because if you're not following him on Twitter, you're doing Twitter wrong. Thanks, CBW. Dan, you know, what do they call those things when you sort of, you give sort of a taste of what's going to happen? Like, what do they call that? A tease or something? Is that what they call call it? A tease, guy. You kind of nailed that one. All right. Well, here's the deal. You know, you've been doing. CNBC's Fast Money for 15 years. You are the OG. You are the original gangster, as the kids say, on that very first panel. You know, but here's the thing. For some reason, they go dark during Olympics, and that show is on at 5 p.m. Eastern. Well, here's the good news. I don't watch curling at the Olympics. I don't know if you do that. I like talking about the stock market. I like talking about individual names as earnings are coming out. So one of the things that we decided to do with Market Call is, like, we got nothing better to do. Let's do Market Call at 5 o'clock. We're going to do it Monday through Thursday this week and then Monday through Friday next week, 5 o'clock at this link here. What do you think about that guy, Donnie? I think it's pretty cool. I'm excited about it. And as you mentioned, I mean, this potentially could be two of the busier weeks we're going to see for the first half of this year in terms of earnings, in terms of that CPI number, just a lot of things going on. These tensions, Russia, Ukraine, I mean, none of this stuff is abating. So we figured, you know what, we're usually doing something at five. We might as well do market call at five for you folks. So we hope you definitely tune in, Dan Nathan. That was, by the way, today's 11 a.m. version of market call brought to you by our presenting sponsors, FactSet and Open Exchange. If you do like what you saw today, be sure to tune in every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday live at 11 a.m. And as Dan mentioned, this week and next week at 5 p.m., we're going to be doing market call hosted on Open Exchange, YouTube, and Twitter. We're all over the place. You don't want to miss it, Dan Nathan. That's right. I'm excited, man. Listen, tonight we're going to do a breakdown of just some of these breakdowns in the stock market over the last couple of weeks. We're going to call that Mind the Gap. I think some of those moves, Guy, that we saw last week between Facebook, Amazon, Snap, and, and listen, not all going the same way. It just, like, I think it, it, it deserves a little time to kind of take stock of what just happened here. To me, something's kind of broken in market structure here, and I don't think that's particularly bullish. So we're going to take some time and talk about that, and then we're going to dig deeper into some of those catalysts that we started this show talking about and think about how we're positioning ourselves this week for some of those big earnings and that CPI on Thursday. So tune in today at five. This is going to be an experiment. We're really excited for Open Exchange and FactSet to come along on this ride with us over the next couple of weeks. We got Twitter spaces today at one and then five and a half hours from now, obviously, market call at five. I'm fired up, Dan. Looking forward to seeing you for both of those things. All right, buddy. See you later.